Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 27 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today addresses internal controls and enforcement risks. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. In today's episode, I'm going to review the internal controls requirement and enforcement risks. I've consistently advocated that companies need to pay more attention to the crafting of internal controls, especially in view of the enforcement risks against companies for failing to implement reasonable controls and, more importantly, for circumventing controls. On the one hand, a company has an incentive to adopt and implement effective internal controls for its financial accounting system, its compliance program. When doing so, though, the company pays little to no attention to the enforcement risks, criminal or civil, for failing to adhere to such controls. Another way I always say to look at this, at least from my is that the laws set up a situation in which companies are adopting internal controls that operate and are enforced like criminal and civil statutes. In effect, a company is creating its own sort of set of internal laws that, and statutes that the government can then use against the company to extract criminal and civil penalties. So let's start with the law, then we're going to examine some co- cases and then discuss some strategies for how to deal with this uh, problem area. First, with regard to the law, the FCPA requires companies to make and keep accurate books and records and to devise and maintain an adequate system of internal controls. The FCPA also prohibits individuals and businesses from knowingly falsifying books and records or circumventing or failing to implement a system of internal controls. Importantly, the accounting provisions and the internal controls requirements are not just limited to bribery-related violations. Rather, the provisions ensure that all public companies account for their assets and liabilities accurately and in reasonable detail. These provisions are the fundamental requirement enforced by DOJ for criminal accounting fraud and by the SEC for civil accounting fraud. Sarbanes-Oxley, which was promulgated in response to accounting scandals involving major U.S. companies, strengthened these requirements. Section 302 of Sarbanes-Oxley requires a company's principal officers, its CEO and CFO, to certify to the integrity of the company's financial reports on a quarterly basis. Section 404 of Sarbanes-Oxley strengthened the requirements that a company disclose any deficiencies in its internal controls over financial reporting. Under Section 404, issuers are required to report on the effectiveness of their internal controls. In addition, the independent auditor must attest to the overall effectiveness of the company's internal controls. SEC regulations require the independent auditor to report publicly on the overall effectiveness of the company's internal controls. So in tandem, when you look at this, the FCPA and the Sarbanes-Oxley set out a comprehensive regime requiring companies to implement internal controls to disclose any deficiencies, and to prevent any circumvention of such controls. Companies focused on internal controls in response to this, Sarbanes-Oxley with like a laser-like focus. Audit committees became even more important in the 
corporate governance world. Senior executives were required to certify to the accuracy of the company's financial statements. And the quarterly financial reports required detailed certifications uh, in preparation of these reports from managers throughout a company and careful analysis of the internal controls to justify a company's certification. It's also understandable that a company's chief financial officer assume responsibility for this new and important function, and the internal auditors standing within the corporate governance uh, world rose as well. In this new world, the CFO and his or her underlings were responsible for crafting and maintaining a company's internal controls. All of this makes sense, except for one important point. The theory doesn't really match the reality. In fact, the design and implementation of internal controls in many companies appear to be more haphazard. A clear demarcation of responsibility has not been established nor followed. Financial officers are involved in a number of internal controls uh, relating to, obviously, financial accounting uh, practices. But many companies have created, crafted, and implemented other internal controls as part of corporate operations, not just financial operations. Companies have designed internal controls that may not be consistent, but are created in response to a specific need or problem. In these situations, the design of controls is done to accomplish a limited task without consideration of consistency with a larger set of controls. When reviewing a company's internal controls, an auditor is likely to find a haphazard set of documents that reflects the input and design from three separate sources, financial, compliance, and operations. In the context of a new enforcement world where individuals can be criminally prosecuted for circumventing a specific internal control, the implications of this are far-reaching. A company crafts its own internal controls that can then be used against the company and an individual who may circumvent the specific internal control. Think of it this way. If you could write your own laws and then make sure you comply with them, don't you think it would be important to make sure that you craft the laws carefully so that they do not apply to unintended situations or uh, conduct. DOJ, and in particular the SEC, have been aggressive in enforcing compliance with a company's internal controls. When you take a step back and look at this regulatory and enforcement regime, there are certainly some interesting issues to address. Going back to 2012, for example, the SEC used this theory of just an internal controls violation to support the prosecution of Oracle for creating a risk of bribery, citing deficiencies in its internal controls and books and records in the recording of expenditures related to distributors in India. In the Las Vegas Sands case in 2016 and 27. 2017, Las Vegas Sands first paid $9 million to the SEC and then $6.96 million uh, to the Justice Department in connection with business transactions in China. Prosecutors set forth a mountain of evidence of expenditures that were either not recorded or inaccurately recorded. However, in the Sands case, neither the SEC nor the DOJ was able to cite uh, specific evidence of bribery. In fact, their whole case rested upon circumvention of internal controls or inadequacy of the internal controls. 
Last year, for example, Halliburton paid $29.2 million to the SEC for failing to follow its internal controls with respect to a high-risk transaction. A senior officer who I represented, Janot Lorenz, paid $75,000 for circumventing specific controls related to the review of the high-risk transaction. In 2015, the SEC settled a case with United Airlines uh, for $2.4 million for domestic bribery. The interesting aspect of this enforcement theory was that United violated its business code of ethics, or Continental's Code of Ethics, which was in force in 2011, resulting in the failure to seek an exception to the financial accounting controls requiring authorized use of assets. As a result, United also violated the books and records requirements. The SEC's enforcement action raises interesting questions in the United case for public companies when adopting a code of conduct. The SEC has now embraced the potential liability for violating internal controls when a company violates its code of conduct. The implications, and think about this, may be significant. First, such a reading of the SEC's authority provides it with a huge enforcement tool that can be levied against any company for any type of legal violation that may be referenced in its code of conduct. For example, if a company's code of conduct prohibits anti-competitive agreements, such as price fixing or territorial allocations, a company that violates the antitrust laws and is criminally prosecuted by the Justice Department may be subject to a parallel SEC enforcement action for violating its internal controls as reflected in its code of conduct and its specific antitrust compliance policy. That is a very broad reading and set of possibilities for the SEC prosecutors to pursue. Consider also in 2016, Oxif, a private equity company, settled FCPA charges with the DOJ and the SEC for total penalties of $412 million. Oxif failed to conduct proper due diligence of its third-party agents and joint venture partners on numerous occasions, paying little to no attention to existing anti-corruption policies and procedures. In 2008, OXIF designed policies and procedures that required rigorous due diligence and anti-corruption measures, especially for high-risk transactions. Unfortunately, when it came down to it, OXIF failed to follow these requirements in connection with its relationships with agents and a joint venture partner in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, and in Libya as well. As noted by the SEC, OXIF's failure to comply with its own procedures, in a sense, was the circumvention or ignoring of their own internal controls. And so you can see from just these examples, the SEC's internal controls enforcement authority is so broad and can be applied to a variety of situations. So what's the lessons learned here? Companies have to take greater care in the drafting and application of its internal controls, Too often, a company drafts and implements its internal controls in silos and uh, addresses specific issues as they arise. This haphazard approach can lead to real difficulties and problems. Legal and compliance staff need to be involved in this process to make sure that the company is not exposing itself to unjustified risks. A company's financial and operations staff typically leads this effort, and legal and compliance are rarely, if ever, at the drafting table. Often, a set of internal controls is a historical accretion of policies and procedures adopted on an ad hoc basis throughout the company's history. 
This short-sighted approach has to be replaced with a more careful strategic weighing of benefits and risks. The first hurdle to overcome, as always, is acknowledgement that a new approach is needed. The CFO and the financial team will inevitably resist such an effort because this has long been an area where they are the experts, they are the keepers of the sword of truth, and they have to be convinced to come down from Mount Olympus to collaborate with other key stock stakeholders. A new committee is needed. I know you're rolling your eyes about yet another new committee, but hear me out. The stakeholders include specific functions responsible for operating within the internal controls. Finance, operations, procurement, compliance, and legal. Yes, legal. Each of these players have to be involved in this new approach to design and implement effective internal controls. The second step in this process is the collection of every internal control maintained by the company. This will take time because some will be hard to find and others may be rarely used or even unknown to many employees. The third step is the assignment of primary responsibility for the internal controls. Each function should take responsibility where it has the natural lead. Compliance for compliance-related controls. Finance for finance controls. Operations for operations-related controls. And procurement for procurement-related controls. The fourth step is to create a review matrix or a set of key questions for each internal control. These questions include, what is the purpose of the control? How does it align with current operations in the company? Does the control accurately reflect existing corporate policy governing the task? What key terms are used in the control and need to be defined? With this frame of reference now, the stakeholders should develop revisions or at least recommended changes to an existing control or adoption of a new control or combination of existing controls into a single control. The review process is intended to identify potential problems with the existing control and practice, develop proposed solutions, and use consistent terminology throughout. The fifth step is to assign responsibility to a few individuals as the Scriveners of the new set of internal controls. A member of the legal team should be involved in this process, preferably one who is known for their writing ability. A group effort should be made to bring together the final review, revision, and reorganization of the internal controls. The objective of this final step is to create a concise and thoughtful set of internal controls that adequately addresses specific requirements and uses consistent terminology and defined terms. It is critical that the internal controls are properly crafted to avoid overbroad requirements and terminology that can be used against the company by government prosecutors in situations that were never intended. On the other hand, the internal controls need to accurately capture the intended conduct and applicable requirements that need to be regulated. The entire process is a balancing act that requires a collaborative approach built on a common understanding of the company's operations and policy purposes. It is key to balance internal regulation against external risks from government enforcement agencies. To be sure, the crafting of internal controls means that there may be disagreements about stakeholders on specific terms, but it is better to hash out these issues in the internal stakeholder context. Thanks again for listening to the Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. 
Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals. Thank you.